Hello and welcome to Spotlight on Action, produced by the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, commonly known as the LAN. I'm the, the host of today's session. I'm Mark McClellan. I'm the co-chair of the LAN CEO Forum and the director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy. This Spotlight on Action podcast series features LAN stakeholders discussing real-world actions and opportunities to transform the healthcare system while aligning with the LAN goals and initiatives related to alternative payment models or APMs and those key goals are health equity, healthcare access, value-based healthcare, best outcomes for everyone at the uh, at the lowest possible cost. This has been the, the land's mission for some time, but it's been both challenging and, and uh, fraught with some new opportunities in the context of the pandemic, which all of us, all healthcare systems are still struggling through to address. Uh, today, in that context, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, co-chair of the LAN's Care Transformation Forum. Um, that's where the LAN action happens. Uh, and uh, he's also the Chief Medical Officer at Humana, Dr. Will Schrank. In his role as Humana CEO, Will is at the forefront of transforming, uh, of uh, Humana's efforts to transform our healthcare system into one that's more agile, one that's more responsive to the needs of patients, and is focused on these LAN goals of better outcomes, fewer barriers to care, better patient experience, uh, and more equity, including through addressing steps like the social barriers to uh, access to needed care. So not a small task, but one that uh, Humana with Will's leadership is very committed to being a leader on, and it fits in with the, the, the broad array of perspectives that we seek to bring together in the land. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about today, given uh, Humana's role and activities in both advancing value-based care and responding to the pandemic. And Will, really pleased to be with you today for this discussion. Well, I appreciate the invitation, and it's always, always a treat to get a chance to talk to you. Well, thank you. And I want to talk about several broad topics today, uh, kind of bearing in on the work that you've done in leading Humana's transition to value-based payments uh, that's intersected with your having a step up for uh, the response to the pandemic, where we really needed some innovative models of, of healthcare uh, to deal with uh, uh, COVID, to deal with the shift to home-based care, to, to deal with the new behavioral health, uh, mental health stresses that have arisen, and to deal with um, all of those uh, social barriers and challenges to getting to equity in healthcare that have come up uh, and actually been exacerbated in the context of the pandemic. Um, you know, the land's been working on this for, for a while now, a year ago, uh, over a year ago now, the land launched the healthcare resiliency framework uh, in response to COVID-19 and uh, uh, in response to the land's efforts to make sure that uh, APM reforms, other value-based care reforms stayed as relevant and, and impactful as possible. And that framework includes both some short-term actions, some long-term steps to build resiliency in our healthcare system. As part of that, Humana stepped up and made a set of uh, shared commitments as part of the overall land process, working together on these resiliency challenges challenges and some individual company commitments uh, to move forward uh, despite uh, or to respond to the challenges of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about some of the actions that, that Humana took in the short term during the public health emergency to, to, help, create that, uh, to help create that resilience? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think, first of all, I'd say that we did a lot at Humana, but uh, I've been so, so, so impressed and proud to see how the insurance industry in general and just the healthcare sector in general um, partnered so deeply and uh, selflessly throughout the course of the, this pandemic uh, to figure out how together we can meet the needs, the very, very personal needs of our members and patients. It was very, very clear to us at the outset of the pandemic as we were reaching out to our members as we generally do to ask them about their chronic conditions um, and their healthcare concerns. It was just really clear that folks were having um, new problems, different kinds of challenges, day-to-day challenges that really emerged from their social context. And it, 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 it forced us within, you know, in a relatively short amount of time to really transform the way we collect information and we provide outreach to our high-risk members from focusing on their conditions and managing their conditions to really understanding the uncertainty of the pandemic and how we can help them. And over the course of the pandemic, we conducted over 6 million uh, screenings around health-related social needs, provided over a million meals addressed issues ranging from housing insecurity and and tr- and transportation issues to really you know core issues like social isolation and loneliness um, at the same time we um, partner deeply with providers in new ways and our value-based providers uh, we offered considerable amounts of advances in terms of their quality bonuses and their their um, their surplus bonuses in order to keep them whole for those that weren't capitated and weren't prepaid. Um, And we reduced a whole host of administrative barriers to try to make sure that there were less um, uh, concerns about capacity, whether it's access to subacute nursing facilities or, or the like. We spent a lot of time figuring out how to get more care to the home. Um, And um, whether it's providing screenings in the home, whether it's providing care in the home, that was a, a large priority. And we worked closely with CMS, who gave us a, a great deal of latitude through waivers. Um, we um, eliminated all barriers to telehealth. So we, we provided telehealth services, or we offered telehealth services with no cost sharing to make sure that there was, uh, there were, patients, our members could get access to the care they need from the comfort of their own homes, the safety of their own homes. Uh, and in addition to things like not charging any copays for testing or for treatment of COVID. And then we, we really, really engaged around the time of the vaccine and we continue to try to understand the very personal barriers that individuals face um, and to try to make sure that we're providing both education, transportation, engagement, information, uh, to encourage our members, and particularly those that are in socially vulnerable areas, um, to to get vaccinated, it's been a very fulsome kind of uh, year and a half where we've we've tried everything. We know that with a great deal of humility, we haven't done it all right. Um, we've learned from our colleagues. We hope we've shared with our colleagues uh, across the industry and across the sector, and we um, we continue to be you know eager participants if we try to manage this. 
Yeah, it's still, still opportunities to keep learning. Um, you know, I was struck by, we we've, you know, probably won't be surprised to the audience that we've talked about some of these topics uh, before. And you know, I was struck by in some of those discussions and seeing some of the activities around, uh, at, around Humana and many of the diverse medical practices that you, you work with around the country, um, you found that some of the organizations, the healthcare organizations that were already going down this road of value-based care, moving away from fee-for-service, um, had a, a somewhat easier time in some ways of, uh, of making these adaptations uh, on the fly in this, um, uh, in this public health emergency. If, if I've got that right, could you expand on that a little bit or explain yeah. a bit more? Yeah, it's, that is right. Um, and it's, it was actually in a lot of ways really reassuring to see that our providers, in particular those that are prepaid, who are, um, who are responsible for the total cost of care of our members, uh, were unbelievably flexible and nimble, in part because they were less concerned about sort of their day-to-day -day revenue. They were, their revenue was, was, um, was assured. Um, so there was less sort of concern, you know, about their resilience, if you will. However, in in, in producing and the trans the clinical transformation that's necessary to be successful in total cost of care models, um, those providers were just much better positioned to deliver the care that our members, their patients. So whether it was providing more continuous and frequent outreach to manage chronic conditions whether it was flipping almost with incredible speed to the use of telehealth. Um, and it was, in addition, it was really focusing on those social and, and, and sort of personal um, challenges that their patients were experiencing. Those providers did, they, they were in a much better position to help. It's interesting that you would expect at a time where, um, where fee-for-service providers were would be trying to sort of uh, supplement their revenue. We had we we offered telehealth at full charge. Um, we would have expected that fee for service doctors would be much more rapidly adopting uh, telehealth in order to um, substitute for the in person visits. But that's not at all what we found. We found that value based providers were much faster at adopting telehealth over the course of the pandemic. And it was sustained considerably longer than in um, than in fee for service arrangements, and it just speaks to the fact that it's an orientation, it's a focus on the whole patient, and it's a it's a it's a clinical transformation model that allowed those providers to deliver a different level of care. So they'd already established some of the the, the new connections, the the different kinds of uh, staffing and capabilities needed uh, started to build out those those muscles already. And it's interesting, we did a report on a range of healthcare organizations uh, last year during the pandemic is it at uh, Duke Margolis on uh, healthcare and COVID healthcare reform and COVID-19 resiliency and found something similar that um, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to have a telehealth visit with a patient. It's another thing to make an effective 
home-based care model work, which definitely requires the connectivity, but also can be augmented by things like remote monitoring capabilities, uh, nurses or other members of a healthcare team who can help follow up with a patient, making sure their needs are being met at home, uh, reliance on community health workers since, uh, as it sounds like you found during the pandemic, uh, a lot of the problems that people were facing that were leading to serious medical consequences, everything from infections to <laughs> emergency room visits, serious depression, et cetera, were related to things going on beyond healthcare. Um, uh, the, you mentioned transportation and, and isolation, uh, for, for example. Uh, it sounds like that was your experience too. Absolutely, absolutely. This was um, this is one of these unique perturbations that um, forces forced forces us to take a step back and really understand the drivers of health and the true, very personal barriers that patients, that members, beneficiaries face, and. Um, I think we've learned a lot over the course of this year and a half about what it takes to keep people healthy. Uh, and, you know, it's in these moments of uncertainty that, that, that we really accelerate our learning. I think we've, uh, these are, these are the, the, the integration of uh, the deeper integration of social care, the deep integration of behavioral health care, the need to better uh, leverage care in the home and virtual care, as a, as a sort of an integrated part of care delivery. And to do that all in a model where the provider takes meaningful responsibility and ownership for the health of the, the population of patients they serve, that is, I, that, that is the model that has clearly been most um, effective at managing the course, uh, throughout the course of the pandemic. And that's the one that uh, I think we're seeing CMS sort of lean in on. And I think we as an industry are all gonna lean in on. Yeah, certainly seeing that that leaning in. Um, I, I guess the a challenge, though, for is that most of the healthcare system heading into the pandemic, and and I think even today was not being paid on that basis. They're uh, very much dependent on the fee for service revenues. And boy, you know, like, like you said at the beginning, the, those those physicians, nurses, hospitals, uh, um, skilled nursing, long term care facilities have have really had to uh, to step up. And you know, I guess the the challenge will that as you think about moving from the short-term response and, and what worked in terms of flexibility and what especially worked in terms of the organizations that were already going down the value-based care road in a serious way. The challenge is, um, how, do you, how do you build on that? I mean, so many physicians, healthcare organizations that are just feeling burned out, overwhelmed with this, uh, with this latest surge in, in many parts of the country. And, and it felt like, well, you know, we can't build out these new capabilities. We're having trouble just, just getting by. You know, we appreciate that the payment flexibility, but um, you get a sense that we can build on these steps in the short term uh, to learn from them and, and make them take more widely and accelerate progress for the longer term? Or has this just been uh, uh, a, a year of, um, uh, of disruption and, and, and hopefully we can get back to reform later? Well, I, th well, I, um, I know I share your perspective here that uh, this is not a blip, then we're gonna go right back to where we were. Um, I think, that there is no way that we will ever look at care in the home and virtual care the same. That is now part of the conversation and it's an expectation that that's 
a consistent offering, and we've got a lot, lot, lot more patients, in particular seniors, who've gotten comfortable with using technology and creating new kinds of relationships in terms of delivering care. Um, the other thing that you know you you spoke to uh, as as you in, in the introductory remarks about equity, um, that the pandemic has really shined a very bright light on um, not just these important drivers of health, but really the how different populations within the U.S. experience care and experience health outcomes in very different ways, and that we will not walk back in terms of recognizing equity as a primary goal of the healthcare system. And as long as we do, and we start to really continue to, as we, as we foster and continue the right measurement and the right incentives around promoting equity, that's gonna be another really important motivator for providers to take a much more holistic view about how to manage the health of the patients that they serve. And as this is just another, I mean, I feel like there's there's been sort of building momentum, building inevitability, inevitability but this seems to be another big piece that's going to really help, um, uh, you know, create more uh, more of a center of gravity for that momentum. Yeah, let, let's unpack that uh, a little bit, uh, if, if that's okay. I mean, 2020 does seem like it was uh, an inflection point um, um, with respect to addressing equity in, in healthcare and so many other aspects of American society. On the one hand, um, an inflection point in the wrong direction, including some you know, really terrible events outside of healthcare and within healthcare, a hugely disproportionate impact uh, by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status uh, across different groups in our nation with uh, what had been some real progress and improvements in life expectancy and reductions in, uh, in health disparities over the last couple of decades kind of wiped away by some estimates uh, uh, for Black Americans and Hispanic Americans loss of two or three years uh, of, uh, of, of life expectancy. Um, it, it's hit all Americans hard, but, but particularly uh, racial and ethnic minority groups groups and, and, and lower income groups. And you all, uh, the, the flip side of that um, inflection point, it seems like an inflection point of awareness. And, and uh, as I mentioned at the outset, as you're involved with it, the LAN, um, the LAN is taking uh, just like Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and, and really all of HHS and many of our colleagues in state governments, uh, in employer um, uh, settings, uh, running employer plans, uh, uh, health plans around the country are putting equity much more front and center, being more intentional, as you said, about measuring these disparities, engaging um, communities and, and diverse populations in finding uh, and working together, co-developing solutions to to try to reduce them in, in implementing those. And he had sort of a trial by fire in the, in the pandemic. And could, could you maybe expand a little bit? Uh, you talked about some of the steps, Will, but I know there have been some really innovative programs at Humana, including taking a fresh look at uh, ways of working with uh, the federal government and, and state governments on public health initiatives like, uh, like vaccination, which I, I hope to your earlier point are gonna stick with us as well. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the Humana experiences in that area? Yeah, I'd say Humana, but really the, you know, the industry in general has, um, we, 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 the, so we, we got together as an industry, uh, the insurance industry to 
understand how we could partner better to address, to improve vaccination rates, but essentially to prophylax against the likelihood, which ended up you know, happening, that there would be uh, considerable disparities in uptake of the vaccine. Over the course of the pandemic, we had seen the you know, disparate impacts on people of color. We wanted to be really thoughtful about understand, understanding sort of who's most socially vulnerable, providing additional resources up front, try to reduce the likelihood that you have pockets of the population that were under-vaccinated and for whom there was you know, much greater risk than other pockets where they were more vaccinated. Um, so what we did is as, a, as an industry, we worked together to identify the 25% of communities with the highest social vulnerability index. It's an index um, generated by the CDC to, that characterizes, um, it, it uses data about uh, income and wealth in addition to ethnicity and race, uh, transportation, other kinds of sort of census level data to characterize um, characterize vulnerability uh, related to social condition. And in those, um, in those, those quarter uh, of communities, we provided a considerable amount of proactive outreach. We called members, we encouraged them to use the vaccine, to, to, to be vaccinated. We offered uh, essentially almost uniformly across the health plans, offer transportation and other resources to try to facilitate. Um, many of us created partnerships with with providers, we created partnerships with Walmart and Walgreens to um, uh, where they gave us the ability to, to actually schedule appointments in their, well, Walmart in particular, gave us the ability to schedule appointments into their clinics so that we could really end to end. Once we got a, a member on the phone that wanted to get vaccinated, we could, we could schedule the appointment and provide the transportation and make sure that they did in fact get that vaccination. Um, and we focused those efforts in the most vulnerable neighborhoods. We started in vulnerable neighborhoods in Alabama and had a really incredible positive uh, feedback and then spread that out to, to you know, many, many states where we had uh, relationships with retail pharmacies to try to foster um, the completion of those, those vaccinations. We worked with a variety of states. As you know, Mark, we, um, we wish we could do more, um, but worked with states to try to understand what problems they're solving and to figure out how to target and deliver. Often we brought in mobile units uh, to actually deliver vaccinations. We set up vaccination clinics uh, in partnership with local providers to try to really focus the, 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 the delivery and the supply on where the need was greatest. And it was generally in places with lots of social, with more social vulnerability. You know, there, there's, we're, we're, we're still in the midst of this pandemic, um, and there's still a lot of people who haven't been vaccinated. So clearly, uh, we're having this conversation with a lot of humility. It's not like we've got this solved, um, but um, we, uh, we have, we have really um, put together a pretty concerted effort to figure out how we can be part of the solution. I want to recap a couple of the important points uh, that you uh, that, that you described there. One is the steps that 
um, health plans, including particularly Humana, where you've got the, the most direct experience for taking to, you know, take on some of these uh, public health and, and equity issues in a more direct way. And just to add to that, uh, as you know, we've done a lot of work, uh, including collaboration with the health plans and the states at, at uh, the Duke Margolis Center, including some public some publications again available on our website about how states and uh, um, health plans can work together, as you said, to identify these pockets of inequality in access, these uh, um, uh, areas that are uh, or are, are have been harder uh, or hardly reached uh, in terms of uh, uh, supports to, to get to better health and prevent uh, complications. And even some steps um, as you look forward to what I think 21st century public health can really look like, uh, partnerships between state immunization programs, uh, sharing public health data in you know, confidential and secure and appropriate ways with, with health plans and their healthcare providers that are really trying to take on this focus on accountability for better outcomes and, uh, and lower costs. And that leads me to the second point. So there are a lot of things that you're doing, but, but back to our discussion about the role of payment reform and value-based care here uh, for your providers that are shifting away from fee-for-service, that gives them more opportunity as well to, to, to reach out to those uh, particular patients in need to, uh, to um, find uh, whatever it, to help do whatever it takes to, uh, to get those patients uh, um, health risks addressed. Uh, is that, are those programs synergistic as you've, uh, as you've implemented it? Absolutely. I mean, you, you've often said, I think you've probably been the leading voice in saying that uh, in the setting of this uncertainty, uh, public and private partnerships are absolutely essential to bringing the right level of resources and the, you know, the, the optimal uh, expertise to bear at a really, really challenging time. So I do think that those partnerships, partnerships with states, partnerships with the federal government, create sort of the foundation on which we have better data, better resources, better community outreach that really do support that the, um, uh, the, 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 the sort of laboratory to, to foster and improve on value-based care. That we have the right data, we have the right information, we have the right sort of community supports to help providers meet the very personal needs that patients face. And in that setting, they can really think about their, their ownership and their uh, accountability for the outcomes of the patient, not just for delivering care. Yeah, and we're certainly not all the way there yet, but that kind of intentionality and alignment around population health goals, including health equity goals, including goals of uh, getting vaccination rates up, especially in uh, hardly reached populations. Um, other steps to improve population health and avoid unnecessary costs is that kind of alignment between payers, providers, uh, uh, public health organizations that I think the, uh, the pandemic has, has really highlighted in terms of, of where we need to go to both get out of uh, the, the situation we're in now and uh, prevent something like this from, from uh, ever happening again. Um, well, we are about out of time. It's been a actually. Great can I discussion. do? Can I just pile on one? I, I was going to ask for like some final thoughts on on before we leave. Uh, since you're so involved with the land efforts about moving forward from here, how do we build on um, the, the the this very special, very challenging, but very special moment we're in right now? Yeah. 
Well, I just wanted to pile on one thing you just said, and then I'll I'll answer that question. The, um, you were you you were sort of high, you, you were hinting at multi-payer how the partnerships between private and public entities can support multi-payer activity, and that's such a critical piece of this. Is that as we um, as we do deepen public-private partnerships and we get create greater alignment as payers uh, and as federal agencies and state agencies around aligning around these 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 approaches to foster value-based care, it's a lot easier for providers to be successful in that environment. It's very hard in a fragmented environment where there's a whole host of different payment models that they're dealing with. Uh, and it's through these deeper partnerships that we can actually really accelerate and make it easier for pro providers and move faster. Um, and I would say in answer to your, your last question, um, that um, you know, we should, a wise, a wise friend once said to me um, that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. And um, we, um, this has been an incredibly trying and exhausting and uncertain and really difficult time for so many of us. But we've learned a lot and we've made a lot of progress in areas that we, we never could have imagined. We never could have imagined getting the 90% telehealth visits in a matter of months um, would have been unimaginable. We never would have imagined our ability to rapidly um, you know, put together models to deliver better care at home and offer services at home. We, we, and we also have a, a much more um, uh, humble and honest and open appreciation for our failings in terms of how, what we need to do to be able to deliver more equitable care for all the people we take care of. This is absolutely the time for us to um, put our heads down and work even harder. It's exactly the time for us to build on sort of these unanticipated gains and make sure that not only do we not lose them, but we take this momentum as an opportunity to get better. And uh, I'm really, really optimistic, frankly. I think that I think that we as a we as an industry have all sort of started to wrap our heads around the idea that we can do better and we can partner better and we can align better. And uh, I'm really excited. I think value-based care is going to be sort of the, the core theme that, to bring that through. Yeah, well, what, what an experience this last uh, year and a half with the pandemic has been. But uh, as you said, it, it has created some opportunity and some real momentum uh, for multi-payer progress. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you on the LANS efforts for all of those who are joining uh, with us in this uh, podcast. Uh, the, the current LAND activities are making available more experiences and lessons like the ones we've talked about today from the pandemic. In, in resilience and, and how to uh, accelerate that and, and uh, support it through payment reform, both today and, and looking ahead. Uh, looking farther ahead for the, the LAN, there's a collaborative effort ongoing now, now around uh, action on health equity uh, and on, as Will said, multi-payer approaches to 
uh, supporting these kinds of reforms, making it easier and more aligned for healthcare providers, for employers, for, uh, for other key uh, stakeholders in the community, and especially for patients. So uh, please visit the LAN website to, to keep up to date on, on these activities. And, and Will, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Thanks for all your time and effort on helping to, to guide the LAN towards uh, its uh, uh, more relevant than ever goals. Um, uh, in, uh, in, in today's uh, challenging times. And for all of those of you who are with us, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, if you wanna find out more again, please go to the LAND website, uh, look for some of our other Spotlight on Action uh, series uh, episodes, highlighting work to advance value-based care and uh, stay tuned uh, for further progress and further opportunities to collaborate.